G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 610 Media acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, the Gubby Gubby people, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and future. A quick disclaimer before we start. Tear It Down is a podcast about all things mental health. Therefore, it may contain coarse language, adult themes, and subject matter that may be distressing to some listeners, such as suicide, self-harm, and references to drug and alcohol abuse. Please, listen at your own discretion. If you yourself are struggling, you can reach out to Lifeline on 131114. Well, g'day and welcome back to Tear It Down. Tearing the stigma down around mental health, one story at a time. I'm your host, Jamie Pultz, but of course you already know that. It's episode 10. I probably should stop saying that. Anyway, thanks again for listening, sending your messages of support and leaving reviews. I don't always get back to people straight away, but I'm telling you, I do read your emails, I do read your messages and your comments, so thank you. I really hope that you are getting something good out of these conversations because I can tell you I sure am. I really believe that we can do our part to tear the stigma down. It might not happen this generation, but let's pave the way for the next generation by inspiring them with our own stories. If we can do it, then our kids can do it. And so on. On this episode, I'm speaking with someone I have a lot of respect for. And if you've listened to my first podcast, Bean and Valley Road, then I know you will too. Alison has had more than her fair share of heartache and hardship in her life, but she still gets up each day and fights the good fight. I've had the privilege over the years since I've known Alison, watching her slowly get her mojo back, since momentum in her daughter's case is slowly gaining. And for those that don't know, Alison's daughter Kira was killed in 2014 when she was 27 years old. At the time, Kira was in a domestic violence relationship with a guy named Paul. It was labelled as a suspicious death, but with 105 bruises on Kira's body, Alison always knew in her gut that someone had killed her. Recently, the state coroner found the injuries inflicted on Kira by her partner Paul was the cause of her death, but at the time of this recording, no one has been formally charged. Along with this tragedy, Alison suffers from bipolar and has since her teenage years. Along with the warnings you heard at the top of the show, in this episode, we go into a lot of detail about some pretty serious domestic violence that resulted in a death. Take care and listening. So welcome to the show, Alison. Thank you, Jamie. Nice to talk to you again. 
It's great to talk to you. Now, I know people who have listened to Bean and Valley Road, we already know that we've struck up a good friendship over the years. So it's great to actually talk to you about other stuff and hear more about your story because a lot of the time we talk, we talk about Kira and Kira's case. So we actually get to hear a bit more about you today. So how are you going, Alison? Um, I'm going a lot better. The The inquest findings certainly made an impact on my life. I felt like that was the, the tide-turning moment. Um, I, I, if you watch Australian Story, I felt it. I just absolutely felt it at that moment, and you know that because you had your hand on my shoulder and it was like yeah, that was that was a really magical moment it was yeah so so yeah things are improving um everything else seems to be going well and yeah we're just waiting now to see what this further investigation brings for Kira and that's kind of my next stop that's right that's what you're living for that's the hope well, yeah, there's always, you know, the next step. But um, I would have thought it wouldn't take this long, but then the other side of me says, hello, you know, we're used to waiting. So I just kind of have to take it on the chin. Yeah, like we've come this far. You've waited this long. Man, yes. we're much, yeah. We're that much closer now. Yes. Well, we We certainly are. I mean, thanks to a whole heap of things, there's, a lot more information out there, you know, there's photographs out there and um, names out there and surely that's going to have some effect on, you know, police investigations. Yeah, I would have thought so too. And not only that, the community response and the feedback and the support. I mean, we do get on on social media and emails and I know you get contacted as well, but the support, I mean... Most people, I mean, apart from a few trolls and a few, I don't know, annoying people, the rest well, is really good. I have found um, that a lot of people make assumptions, which I was always taught was never a wise idea. Um, and I think a lot of them really show their ignorance by making comments when they don't have all the information. Um as you said, apart from those, yeah, um, the response has been amazing. Um, you probably see it more than I do because I don't see your figures and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I know, I know there's a lot of people out there that listen to it, and um, I do appreciate their support very much. I usually try and they've all got your back. That's a nice feeling. No matter where you are in the world, these days it makes it easy just to send a message or to comment on a Facebook post. And, you know, as long as it's positive, then it's, it's going to be helpful. There's only a few people who write something stupid or negative, but I guess we just got to learn. Most importantly, I'm bad at this, but I'm getting better. Just being able to look at a negative comment and going, yeah, that's them. Nothing to do with me. Whatever. Here's your sign, as Jamon would say. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, that's that's how I look at it. I just think, well, you know, that's your issue and not mine, so I'm going to ignore you. And that's you have to learn to do that if you're going to be not that I'm in 
the public eye I wouldn't consider, but, um, you know, available for criticism or whatever on social media, well, you're always going to get criticism. You're always going to get idiots. Yeah, true. You know, nobody would expect that we would have got, this case would have got three episodes on Australian Story. It doesn't happen very often, so that's that's huge and that's such a awesome thing that could happen. Very positive I thing that know. could happen. I know. And I'd, I'm so honoured. Like, I've outdone Wayne Bennett. <laughs> um, he's, a, he's a football coach here if you don't know who Wayne Bennett is. I do. I do. I know. <laughs> I'm from New South Wales, but I do, in fact, know who Wayne Bennett is. So um, despite the fact I'm not a fan of Brisbane football teams, obviously, uh I still feel privileged to have superseded him in my episodes or there's episodes, but, um, and I was pretty impressed with being on the page next to Michael Jordan a couple of weeks ago. That's cool. So, yeah, that was, that was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's awesome. I enjoyed that. And Luke Longley, um, you know, he, he, that was an amazing show that he did. Was his destiny mapped out for him when his name was Longley? <laughs> the bloke's seven foot two. Three, they say. Seven, seven foot three. three. Yeah, wow. well, I think that's when his, his life was mapped out for him, when he was probably six foot tall by the time he hit high school. I've actually seen him from like a foot away. You have? Yeah, at the... um. I was working, you know, I worked in the medical village in the Olympic village at the Sydney Olympics, right? So Mm -hmm. when the flag raising ceremony was on in the village, we all went up to it. So we're all standing there around this circle and all the athletes come up and walk around. And I've got a picture obviously taken from a very low angle because I'm very sure I'm like two feet shorter than him almost. (laughs) Um, And yeah, there's his head right there. I've, I've got that picture that I took, I've got one of Pat Rafter as well. And, yeah, that was an amazing experience. How cool. Because Pat Rafter, I mean, he was a massive star. He's still he pretty was. well known, but he was a massive star when he was when he was on his golden days, when he was in his golden days. Yes. And he's he's a really nice man as well. He, he just has always come across as being so very down to earth. Um, yeah, definitely. He wasn't a deadbeat. No, no. And you sort of would run into people and chat with them and um, it, it was funny. There was a girl came into the clinic and she said to me, oh, I was trying to have a nap and I kept hearing this bang, bang, bang against my back wall. And so I went outside to tell them to stop banging the ball against my wall and I looked and it was Pat Rafter and I thought, Oh no, maybe I won't. <laughs> Just put some earbuds so, in. <laughs> she didn't tell him to stop, but um, yeah, as I said, it was it was something I'll never forget. Um, and and we were actually in our company uniforms, so we stuck out like you know Sore thumbs. And um, people would come up and say to us, "Oh, who are you? You know, we haven't seen that uniform before." So that was kind of good in a way because you could explain who you were and we were doing drug testing for the first time that they brought the blood 
drug testing in at the uh-huh. Olympics. So was everyone just running from you as soon as you approached them? <laughs> N- well, no, no. It was all very high security. You know, you, the person would come in there for their blood test, but you'd also have their coach and their doctor and um, their translator and, you know, wh- whoever else, um, plus the four people that, you know, took the because it was all these stickers, there was no names and it was all terribly complex and you had to get it exactly right and you couldn't afford to mark anything up. No. Because you couldn't damage these athletes. But it's amazing how how some people are like athlete, uh, Olympic athlete capable and yet you put a needle somewhere near them and they become <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, a lump of jelly. So... We all have kryptonite. Uh, we all, and so many have have that. And you know, it is a case of the bigger they are, they the harder they fall. Um, but yeah, had some had some really interesting experiences there. I mean, yeah, because you were a nurse. So let's let's talk about a bit about your life. So where where were you born, and where are you from, and what did you end up doing? Oh my gosh, how long have we got? Um, okay. Well, uh, born and raised lower north shore of Sydney, causing trouble from a young age at my perceived uh, injustices in the world. Uh, Then I went on, oh, gee, I had a gap year. I travelled a lot. I went to university a couple of times. Uh, I did two years of what was then called uh, the Mental Retardation Nursing Certificate, which is now, to be politically correct, it would be the uh, intellectually disabled, but uh, did two of that and then moved on and did my general and finished that, kind of had Cura seven weeks before my state finals and had to move house and uh, got dumped in the meantime um so there was all that then I finished I spent some time just being at home then I got part-time jobs secretarial and nursing home type jobs um oh that's right I went to business college in the year after high school mum said if you're going to have a year off you have to do something constructive so I learned to type which has served me very well I must say for a very long time and um different jobs, Um, and then I was working for a neurologist for about 10 years and then overlapping that I started working as a pathology collector. So you'd be sitting in the rooms there and when people come in and say they need a blood test or whatever, you take that blood? I did that, but I also did on what they call on-call for every second week, which was you had the phone 24 hours a day. And if someone needed blood taking at 2 a.m., you had to go and do it. So I did that for probably six out of ten years. So so you're a blood sucker? Oh, definitely, yes. <laughs> so you've, you've, you've drained many people's blood from them before? Well, I have, but unfortunately that's kind of what contributed to um, 
my body just gave out because I used to end up in some really weird positions trying to get blood out of people whose bodies just didn't want to part with it. And, uh, yeah, you can only do that for so long before your body goes, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. So mine did. And um, then my mum died. Uh, So that's 10 years ago. 2008 was when I finished work. But 2011, my mum died of breast cancer. She was in hospital for the last six weeks of her life, so I was able to be at her bedside for every day of that. Were you close to your mum? We had a really uh, interesting, dysfunctional uh, power struggle of a relationship, Um, two very, very strong-minded women and personalities completely different. She just had no idea how I worked. Um, It it seems to be a common problem. People just don't understand who I am, why I do the things I do. I mean, neither do I sometimes. But, um, you know, she just, she didn't get me and... This is this kind of leads into the whole podcast theme is that you know when I was sixteen and and I had a reaction to something that happened in my life, she decided I was broken and needed fixing. So right, that was kind of so you mean you had you had a psychological reaction to a traumatic experience? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, I think um, one of the things about bipolar or whatever else they call it because I've seen them change their minds every day with diagnoses but um is that you feel things on a far more extreme level and yeah where most people go through life sitting on about you know a five and they'll go up and they'll go down a little bit but they you know mostly just hover around the five whereas with the bipolar polar it's like you go from minus several million to you know maybe 20 out of 10 but um and you can have the same situation on the same from one day to the next but you see it in a completely different way yeah so is it situational for you or is it just like your brain chemistry so like you win the lottery you go to a 20 or could you just be still at minus million um I don't know. I wish I had won the lottery so I could tell you the answer to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it. I can tell you your chances. Um, yeah. I, I'm not going to comment on that. Um, but I've been told it's my brain chemistry. So I'll go with that. And medication seems to have worked. So that kind of backs that theory up. How long have you known you've had bipolar for? Oh, well, since I was 16, really, is, is when I was first given a diagnosis. But I was also, I was also given a diagnosis of, um, let me just find this. I'm not much for diagnosis, I must say, because I have seen hospital situations where psychiatrists have literally changed their diagnosis every single day to something else. You know, this day it's bipolar, next day it's borderline personality disorder, next day it's schizoaffective disorder and, you know, so I I don't have a lot of faith in diagnoses, but 
I was diagnosed as borderline personality disorder, which is a severe disabling condition attributed to a childhood of tragedy and sexual abuse. Individuals experience serious disruption in their mood, in their emotional expression, as well something inability to control their pulses, their impulses. Yeah. Pretty much, and, yeah, that pretty much kind of seems to cover me. So um, So you think that is an accurate description, like the borderline personality disorder? Yeah, I think it probably is. And the fact that medication has worked, you know, when I finally was was put on the right one, yes. That came about because of that incident and your mum said you're broken, you need to be fixed. Is that how that came about? Uh, Seeking trick? No, no, it was just... Um, my reaction to to something that happened that I don't really want to go into. But um, as I said, you you you're hyper emotional because you feel everything on a so much deeper level than everybody you know normal people. Was that evident to like family and friends that you go up and you go down type thing? Um, it took me a long time to recognise it and I also realised when I was younger that it was hormonally related. So sure. um, once I recognised that, it made it a lot easier to deal with because I could yep. look at it and go, oh, no, but, but, you know, that's where I am and so, you know, I shouldn't make any rash decisions. I'll wait until next week and then things may look better. So I... I've always had the insight and the perception to be able to know what's going on in my head and, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So how did, like, I know you said to me in the past, watching your mother die over that long period of struggling with breast cancer, that it, despite your sometimes difficult relationship with your mother, that was a very tough time for you. Oh, yeah. Um Well, the weird thing was too, I just spent two days moving myself and all my belongings and I uh, emptied out 32-foot caravan up to Kira's house to live with her and I got there at like 10 o'clock at night and my sister rings and says, oh, mum's in hospital, they won't let her touch her, won't let anybody touch her until you're there. And I said, well, I'm, I can't, I'm not turning around now. Like I said, I've got to at least get a night's sleep and, and I'll tell her I'll be there as soon as I can get there. So, yeah, it was it was interesting because I had a few um, issues with the medical staff and I probably wasn't very popular with them. But, I, yeah, I just knew what my mother's rights were and... Um, you know, was making sure that she got taken care of as as best she could. Fair enough. Well, yeah, as I said, I didn't make any friends doing it, but I wasn't there to make friends. So, um, you know, and she she um, she was having issues with the chemotherapy, and so everything she ate tasted wrong. Anyway, this this one afternoon, she wanted a pomegranate and a fig. So okay. I said, okay, mum, right? So off I go home. I was living at Wombrel at the, at the time and, and she was in Gosford Hospital. 
So I went to every single fruit and veggie store I could. I ended up going to 12 different places before I ended up with a fresh pomegranate and a fresh fig. Wow. So I took it back the next day and I said, here's your pomegranate, here's your fig. And she took one bite of each of them and went, no, it doesn't taste right. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, I I can never win. I could never win with her. It didn't matter. Yeah. How did having bipolar or borderline personality disorder, how did that affect you growing up and like relationships and going to uni and that sort of thing? Was it something that you managed to cope with or did it come out and make it harder for you? It probably made it harder, but it wasn't impossible. Going to uni the first time, dropping out, well, that's a bit of a long story. I'd been to Europe and they told me that if I did all this work beforehand that I could come back and finish the courses and then when I got back they said, no, you can't. And so I threw a bit of a tanty and said, well, you can take your degree and, yeah, and left. I was, yeah, very unimpressed about that. But probably learnt more in the six weeks in Europe though because we we were doing like free range. Mum was driving, I was translating and um, getting all the accommodation and and the you know get through borders and all that kind of stuff because I spoke you know uni university level French and German so I was pretty good mm. and and fairly fluent and so yeah that's what we did we just hired a car and went hmm that little village looks nice we'll go there discovered Waldorf where Waldorf salad came from originally oh there you go. How naive am I? I didn't even think that it came from a place. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. think it was a name. It's a gorgeous little village. It's uh, I remember it. It's it's amazing. I can see it now in my in my eye in my mind, you know. And even it had a war cemetery. Every town in Europe had a war cemetery because we spent a lot of time looking for where my great uncle was buried, and he died in World War One, and put his stage up from 16 so he could go, but he was never found. He was missing in action. So there was actually no burial site for him, but he's on a monument um, somewhere. Oh, I can't remember the name, but a friend went there a few years ago and she took a picture of it for me, which was really beautiful. That is cool, yeah. As illegal as I now realise it is, I actually have some Flanders poppies (laughs) that I bought home from, no, I wasn't planning on making opium, Um, but (laughs) no, I have them pressed in in a book um, because we were in Flanders and there were poppies all over the ground and I thought I'm going to take them home and press them and put them with his medal and his photograph. That's cool. Yeah, but, well, nothing seems to have happened in my study like any monsters growing out of it so I'm guessing it's not too bad whatever it was has been pretty flattened over the years because that was like more than 40 years ago now well one thing I remember you telling me was having Kira and you know it was just you and her you know it was it was often difficult you know trying to raise her by yourself and but financially you never went into housing and you always managed to do things like little family holidays and even going overseas, which is really cool. I mean, what a great experience for Kira. What a great experience for yourself. How was it being a mother on your own and also having like your mental health issues like bipolar? Well, 
as I said before, you know, they started trying me on all these medications. A lot of them made me feel dopey and they made me put on weight, which has always been a sensitive issue for me. And when she was about two or three, I I just realised that I had to be able to control my emotions better and so I had to get on the right medication and I finally convinced my doctor to put me on to Prozac which seriously took me years because he's saying, oh, it'll give you cancer. I said, I don't care. I'd rather have 10 happy years and die of cancer than 40 miserable years, you know. So he put me on that and and it was like, seriously, it was like legal cocaine. Um, you know, walk around <laughs> kissing babies and, and just smiling and it was like life was good and... I thought, why didn't I find this earlier? And I find that if I forget to take it, which I quite often do, which I've got to fix that, after one day I start to get agitated, after two days I start to get a really bad migraine um, because I'm I'm on like doctors, if I go to doctors that don't know me, they go, oh, I've never seen anyone on that much antidepressant medication before and it's like, yeah, but you haven't lived my life you know, like walk in my shoes just for, for a while and you'll probably be on it too. And also now I have the children with me so much of the time so I don't want to be miserable and I don't want to be a bitch when they're around, you know. I, I want to be their loving mama, you know. And yeah. Um, so if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. Absolutely. And, and that would be my suggestion to anybody with bipolar if, if your medication's not working, get them to try something else. You know, I was, because I was already on the maximum dose of that, when mum was dying and I said to my doctor, look, I'm not, I'm still not coping, you know, like when I look back, I think, well, yeah, that's probably fair enough. Um, but so he put me on a, a secondary drug, which is apparently the only one that interacts with the Prozac. So. I'm then on that as well. It keeps me able to function, like, and I guess that's more important than I realise because now as things have gone on, I'm realising that not everybody is able to keep going. No, you're right. So what kind of symptoms were you experiencing? I know you said, you know, you go up and down and you feel things really, you, you feel the emotions a lot stronger than somebody without bipolar. But what are some other day-to-day, like, symptoms someone might experience? Um... Well, the, the downs, the downs are pretty big. Um, you know, I, I can't, my body actually doesn't do the fetal position anymore. Um, I spend a lot of time in bed with mentally in the fetal position, but physically I can't be because um, right. I just I just can't deal with my reality. And like before I got on the medication, things would happen and I would just be on the floor in a ball in tears for hours. And I, I, I couldn't live like that. No. You know, and then and then the hyper element, you know, there'd be the crazy spending sprees and which of course I can't afford to do now, but crazy ideas of, oh, let's go off and dive on this shipwreck and, you know, let's go and do this. And I remember I remember working at Macquarie Hospital and we had a patient who obviously I can't name but she was what they then called manic depressive this was the early 80s when she was normal she was normal when she was manic it was like just all over the shop and 
then when she was depressed, she was like suicidal 24-7. So it was just this huge thing and and you realise working there what a tightrope walk it is getting the medication right. Yeah. That's such a that's so hard, eh? Yeah, I mean that that's what I mean. I've seen the extremes of bipolar and I've seen where it can go and I figure I've kind of had enough stresses in my life that if I keep piling things onto it, I'm I'm not gonna deal with it all. So Yeah, fair enough. So what other therapy have you had to engage in? Like psychology, psychiatry, um, counseling? Yeah, I've I've tried. See, the thing is with with psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, when you've got your appointment to see them is not necessarily when you're experiencing the crisis. Yeah. So it it, it really to me it doesn't work. It's like, well, today I feel fine, you know. Like um, if you've asked me at 3 o'clock this morning, it would have been a different story. But if you're asking me now, yeah, I'm fine. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, I had a really good one in Gosford for a long time, but we parted ways when I got married in 97, very briefly. Then I kind of was left on my own till after Cura died. Then the Queensland Homicide Victims Support Unit stepped in. Um, and they have been just my absolute rock. Oh, that's good. Yeah. What 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 do they do for you? Just provide counselling? Yeah, but they, they're there when you need them. You know, they're there 24-7. If, if the office isn't open, there's someone who's, you know, experienced a lost child or, or whatever or a homicide and so, you know, even if it's not your usual counsellor, you can still get something off your chest and they kind of understand where you Oh, that's from. good. So, you know. So that's a really good government asset we've got. Oh, it's a government brilliant service. service. It's an absolutely brilliant service and it's so underestimated because, as I said, to my counsellor, because she made me, um, it was like, okay, yes, I give in. I could have done it without you, but it would have been an awful lot harder. So, yeah, she, I, I feel like I couldn't have done it without her, but, yeah, she thinks I could have. So, obviously, losing Kara is a very traumatic time. Uh, and then on top of that, you're bipolar, which makes it even more difficult. What was that time like for you? It's a stupid question to ask, but what was it like? Um, debilitating. It it just yeah, it just broke me. Um, I, 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 that's the only way I can describe it. You know, I just it was all a big blur. I was living in Butterham. Um, with the children and Roger and it all just happened and then I was gone. I had to go back to my stepfather who was dying of cancer and take care of him. Um, And then this one day I'm sitting at my computer and I think I'm going to look up real estate in Walvi. No, Walvi is not a very big place. But anyway, so... 
bingo, up comes rental, Beenham Valley Road, Walvi. <laughs> and I went, yeah. are you serious? Wow. So I had a look at it. I think it was Thursday. I rang the real estate agent. She said, oh, it's an open house Saturday morning. You'll have to be here for that. So I'm like, all right, fine. So I pack everything up, drive up here, go, yep, I'll take it, kind of no matter what, I'll take it. And um, didn't end up moving in there for about another six months. I was up and down the coast. I was off on holidays at one stage trying to kind of get my stuff together and um, trying to... (laughs) trying to take my mother's ashes to Fiji, but that's another whole story. Yeah, yeah, so I ended up there. I was paying rent from the October, but I ended up living there from probably mid-February or so, Um, and then that got sold and I had to move to another place, and then that got sold. I had to move to another place, but touch wood, the place I'm in, um, I won't be going anywhere for a very long time. So what was with Kira, uh, we talked on the podcast on Beaton Valley Road with, with Kira having some mental health issues. Do you think, did Kira have the same issues as you or were they slightly different? She did have the same issues as me, which I blamed myself for for many, many years. And I felt terrible that I'd passed that on to her genetically. But then I was made aware that her father also had some mental health issues and so I thought, oh, poor kids copped it from both sides. Um, but, yeah, she she was still trying to balance her medication, but she had people saying to her that, you know, she didn't need medication and then other people saying she was crazy and, yeah, she didn't know what to do. Which is horrible. It was horrible. Yeah. It was very hard for her, but she knew that I, at least I understood how it felt. Yeah, definitely. And when and when Kira died, did you have to up your dose or did you have to do anything different to cope? Uh, I couldn't up my dose of antidepressants. Um, but, yeah, I tried to... Uh, um, I started on rescue remedy pastilles at one stage Um, and then I just thought, no, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this the the proper way. I'll go to the doctors. I'll say, look, this is what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And he went, okay, well, here's what you need. And um, he realises that I kind of self-medicate according to my stress levels and and understands that. you know, and what's going on in my life is is kind of quite public, so people know what's going on in my life. Um, and yeah, so that that works out well, you know. And yeah, so the doctor prescribed you something yeah, to help you with so, that. So so I I go with that. I go with prescription. I don't abuse it. Um, I'm on a limit. I don't go near it. Um, you know, so to me that's legitimate. I'd rather be doing that than than snorting coke off a mirror, you know. So Yeah, definitely. Um that's that's what I've chosen to do. That works for me. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're in the situation like I am with Kira, then you do whatever it is you've got to do to get through each day. 
Definitely. Because you did tell me that, you know, if it wasn't for your grandkids, then you'd be oh, long gone. Long gone. Which is very sad, but I appreciate your honesty. Well, yeah, I mean, Kira was my reason to live. And so her leaving behind four children is just the hugest gift. Yeah. She could have left me. And my little granddaughter is just disturbingly like her mother. Um, so it's just beautiful. It's it's like a second chance, you know. I see them every weekend and I see them every holidays pretty much. And uh, For the listeners who haven't heard Bean and Valley Road, tell me about the promise you made, Kira, when unfortunately she did die. I promised her that I would make sure her children were taken care of and that I would get the bastard who did this to her. And you are definitely on track and you are keeping those promises. We're on track for getting someone held accountable and you are taking care of those grandkids. I'm doing my best. You are. Let's take a look at something that's probably quite painful, but something that somebody said which was really hurtful as well about when someone made a comment that why would you turn the life support off? And actually that was very mean to say. There was no choice. There was no choice for you to turn the life support off. It was something that no. was told to you. No. There's, and also as a nurse, like she was completely brain dead by the time she reached Gympie Hospital. Now, I didn't see her until the next day when she was at Gold Coast Hospital. By then, she had been completely brain dead for 24 hours. Not yeah. coming back. No. And, and to see her face like the way it was and it was. And, and to see her not reacting to painful stimuli, you know, which is what you do to test people's consciousness, you know, and, and just just the nothing from this previously vibrant, sparkling, amazing personality to this just body with nothing inside it. And you know what? The coroner, hearing the evidence from the medical professionals really helped understanding of that and her condition because a lot of naive people or uneducated people would just be like, oh, yeah, she was hurt and had to decide to turn the life support off. But in reality, she was already dead. Oh, she was, yeah, she was long gone. I mean, I suggested doing an EEG and they just looked at me and said there's no point. And I used to perform EEGs, so I, I knew what they meant. The show will return after this quick break. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. That's amazing because, you know, you've had these pretty debilitating mental health issues, but you've still managed to get a degree. Oh, no, didn't get a degree, didn't get a degree. 
I started uni twice but never finished. So are you an RN or an EN? Oh, no, 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 I'm an RN. That's different. I did nursing training under the old system. Okay. Okay, so you're a registered nurse. You've had a very successful career in that. You raised a daughter. You managed to take her overseas, do family holidays. It was just the two of you. That's something to be proud of. I mean, most people can't. Well, most people struggle without having those two pretty hectic mental health issues, right? Well, I, I guess, but it's like everything else. You know, you only know what you experience, and then you sort of get out into the world, and you realise, oh, not everybody has the same experience with this, or you know, like not everybody's the same as me. Would the medication be the most helpful treatment you've received? Um. I'd have to say yes, to be honest, because I know what happens when I stop taking it and I I just as a, don't want to live that life. No. You know, I want to enjoy what's left of my life and I want to be able to achieve things in domestic violence area and, you know, I need to achieve things as far as cure is concerned. Yeah. I'd really like to see all my grandchildren grown up and happy. Yeah, the point that there is nothing wrong with taking medication. And if you need it, you need it. Same as taking, there are people out there who have a problem with taking Panadol if they've got a headache. Yeah, well, I I don't agree with that. Um, I just think I'm not pro-suffering. Like why suffer if there's a, a resolution? That's my point. And if it happens to be medication, well, it's medication. If it happens to be heroin, well, that's a different kettle of fish. But, yeah. you know, it's not. So as long as, as long as you're not hurting anybody else or, you know, disrupting people's lives or, or whatever, you, you just do what you've got to do. So what do you do now that like relaxes you or brings you back to earth when you are having an up or down moment? If I'm having a down moment, I, I must admit I do tend to curl up in bed with my dog and sometimes I sleep, sometimes I don't. I have a method that I use because my memories are visual, very visual and, and very um, vivid and so when my head's spinning when t- with too many memories, I go to sleep and I, it's really hard to explain, but I paint it black. It's like I get a giant paintbrush and I paint brush strokes in black paint over the pictures in my mind so I can't see them. Wow, that's interesting. And yeah. And I just repeat that over and over and over. And when the pictures are bursting through, I just hit it with the paintbrush and paint it black and paint it black and paint it black until either I go to sleep or I feel better or, you know, the phone rings or, or whatever. But um, that's that's what I do to get rid of the pictures in my head. Uh-huh. And that's something you've come up with by yourself? or Yeah. Yeah, wow. And that helps? Yeah. Um, yeah, and and there was also um, I had issues for a long time with the last picture in my head of Kira was in the hospital bed, and that was just haunting me. That that just wouldn't go away twenty four seven. And I ended up meeting this African lady, and she did this weird tapping thing on me. Um, oh yeah, I've heard about tapping. Yeah, and. 
lo and behold, bloody worked. And now I'm like, I can see that picture without freaking out and without being absorbed by it, you know, 24-7. And I've seen even worse pictures now and, and I can see them and go, okay, well, that's that. And, you know, because as far as I'm concerned, I've got a, I've got a job to do to contribute as much as I can towards, you know, making this all happen. Was the coronial, what was that experience like for you? I mean, because I was nervous and I, I'm not the mother of. Um, the inquest itself, it, it was interesting. Yeah, there's there's a few interesting points that the second neurosurgeon brought up that the first one had not picked up on. So so that was really interesting. But all in all, it was a positive experience for me. I found the um, deputy state coroner to be just sensational at what she does. Yeah. And um, didn't beat around the bush, didn't, you know, mince words, just kind of picked everything up for what it was and went, no, I don't think that's right. She just she just saw it all in in my vision. She saw my vision. I can't understate, overstate the significance of that. Were you able to when they were t- talking about the the medical stuff and going into fairly significant detail? Were you able to separate yourself from that's Kira, that's my daughter, and we're just talking about medical science right now? I've had was to. It- I've had to because of some of the work I've done on the case, which I, I won't go into, but I've had to just look at it and go, right, this is an essay I'm writing for uni and these are the facts, these are the quotes I want to use, These are the. this is the way I want to set it out, you know, like, yeah, I've kind of gone into to essay mode and detached myself because you have to. Um, otherwise you couldn't do it. You couldn't look at those pictures. You couldn't like, you know, I realise now there's people who who can't look at pictures of things that happened years ago and, and stuff. So I guess I'm lucky that I can separate it in that regard so it, it, it makes it easier to try and write a report on it um, when it's like almost writing a nurse's report, you know. Mm, and you've got a like you said, you've got a job to do, you've got a role, you've got a purpose. So you're able to give yourself that uh that kick and that motivation and not see yourself necessarily, not read it as it's your daughter, so to speak. Because if you did that every single report and every single witness and every single thing, it would be soul crushing. Oh, it wouldn't it wouldn't get done. So, you know, it's the only way for me to survive really is to to do that because I know there's going to be things in the future where I'm going to have to do the same thing, go through files, pick out bits that are relevant to whatever it is I'm talking about. This is not over. This is going to be an ongoing thing for who knows how long. I've just got to learn to deal with it and keep going. That's all there is to it. So what advice do you have for other people who might be thinking they have bipolar or manic depression or borderline personality disorder, what what would you say to those people? Well, I think if it's affecting their lives, go and do something about it, you know. It's like I said to Kira, either stop telling me about it or do something about it. And that's that's what I say to people. If they're having a horrible time with their lives, then 
they need to do something about that. They need to either change their circumstances if it's if what they're having is being caused by their surrounding circumstances, they need to change that. If if it's being caused by something internal, they can work on that too. They can either talk to somebody or they can look at medication or they can look at alternatives. You know, they green frog juice from South America, who knows? <laughs> but yeah, whatever just works, do something. Um because it's not worth being miserable. No. And, you know, Kira was lost due to a domestic violence relationship, due to a domestic violence issue. That has given you a new purpose and a new direction to go in life, hasn't it? Well, given you yeah, a new for goal. sure. It, it's difficult because I can't really start that yet. I can't commit to anything because I don't know if there's going to be a trial or, or when or whatever else. Um I always seem to be writing some kind of application or um, appeal or something for, to do with it all. Um, well, you're also good friends with Katie, who was friends with Kira, who was in a relationship with Kira's boyfriend as well before that. Yes. And and you guys have really helped each other out, which is remarkable. We have, and and her dad as well. Her dad has just been an absolute gift to me. Yeah. Um, he's taken on the role of my, well, guardian angel is probably not quite the right phrase. but uh, Guardian bearded man. Uh, yeah, that's something like that. Um, and that's that's really nice. You know, he, he just cares and wants to take care of me and um, make sure nobody does me wrong. And if you've met him, you would understand. <laughs> Yeah, and look, from an outsider, well, not so much an outsider, but from my perspective, it, it shows just the character that you are. It shows what your character is because when we met Tamika at the pub, you know, you were willing to come and basically face the person that v- was there and may have contributed and for all, for all you knew could have actually... Nah. You know, but, but you were there. You were there and you forgave her. You put your arms around her and, and said you forgive her. Whatever role she played, you forgave her, which was just massive. Yeah, because I always knew she didn't kill her. But still, a lot of people wouldn't be able to go anywhere near the person that was there or related to the person who might have done it. So that's a testament to you. And also the fact that you're now really good friends with Katie, who was in a relationship with this person, a forecarer, and you've managed to hold that together, put that aside, become good friends, help each other out. And that's just amazing. And it's testament to you. Well, I don't know what to say when you say things like that. I don't, I, I, I'm just me. Um, you know, I don't. If you were going to take a positive out of this shitty situation, it would be those few things. And, and it might help somebody else. And no doubt your story that you've told on Bina Valley Road that you've told an Australian story, and same with Katie, will help somebody else in the same situation and it might prevent another Kira incident. That's what I'm hoping. That's that's my aim or one of my aims is to be able to somehow help people get out of those situations because, you know, in Kira's situation, it was her house. So why should she leave? Yeah, I know. You know, and we've got to do something. It's just, yeah, it's like she could not get 
that thing to move out of the property. Yeah. So what do you do, you know? I guess that's something we're going to have to do as a community. Well, we have to start educating people and educating blokes who are mainly the perpetrators of this. Yes, and I think also to change the thinking of a, a lot, not referring to yourself, of course, but um, a lot of the police force, uh, the way they look at things, the way they look at some people, the way they speak about them. Um, there's a lot leaves left to be desired in some of those areas. I know what you're saying. I think some stations have started, like they've got sole domestic violence units, you know, and that's all they deal with yes. and they specialise in it. And I think that along with like psychologists maybe at the station where they can go back and like debrief or like get feedback on how relationships work and because some of these cops, they only had six months training, including myself, and you're, some of the cops are 19 years old and they walk out and they're dealing with a married couple who have been married for 40 years, three kids, trying to give them advice. It's yeah. hard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, I know how stubborn Kira was. So, I, you know, that's why the laws have to change because I know that you would have done everything in your power to do something about that, but you were limited by the powers invested in the police. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing or one of the things that's going to have to change because I believe if you couldn't get it to, to you know, come forward to you, then no one could have. Mm. So Yeah, I mean, like I said to you, that's still... That still haunts me. Oh, well. I know yeah. that. I and I am sorry for that, but then I'm also grateful for that. So, uh, you know, it it, but it it shows that even someone who was prepared to do everything in their power still was unable to do anything constructive. So, therefore, the powers have got to be changed. Yeah. Um. And, you know, once I'm a bit more stable with knowing what's going on with court and things, then maybe I can start doing some advocacy work. You know, there's been people suggested to me to speak to that are interested in talking to me and, you know, it's it's it just really is time. We've got to change all this. This is ridiculous. There's mothers all over that have lost their baby girls to this kind yeah. of rubbish. Yep. And we need to band together and, and do something. I was speaking to a lady the other day and she said, you know, what about looking into a Facebook page where people can come for, you know, mothers can come for support when they've lost their children or their, their girls, mm. you know. And I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. So, you know, we'll, we'll be maybe looking at things like that. Who knows? It Usually what happens in my life is that, opportunities are basically presented to me often on silver platters and so that's when I take them because uh, I figure I don't get that twice. Even like mandatory domestic violence awareness conversations at every school, you know, like starting yes, starting sure. in primary school and they do it like once a year where Someone in the domestic violence Definitely. world, whether it's a counsellor or someone who's li lived experience or whatever, a legal person comes and educates people about signs, you know, the circle of abuse, what happens, what to do about it, 
if you're seeing this stuff at home, you know what I mean? Like maybe just start ingraining it in people from a young age. Really early. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, a lot of the kids know what's going on, but they don't know what to do about it. You have to remember that my eldest grandson had only turned eight the week before Kira was killed. So they were all very, very young and the two younger ones don't remember her at all. They have pictures in their rooms of her, but they they don't actually recall any memories. The older two do. The eldest one keeps it to himself most of the time. Alison, I really appreciate you coming on and telling me all those things, sharing your story. I know it's painful for you to share all those things, but thank you so much. We'll be seeing each other soon. Yeah, you know anything for you, darling. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, take care. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to know more about Alison and her daughter Kira's case, then you can listen to the Beanham Valley Road podcast. The link will be in the show notes. Tear It Down is a 610 Media production. A special thanks to Audio Technica and Zoom for supporting me throughout my podcast journey. The cover art was by my talented sister-in-law, Courtney Woods. Theme song, beat number three, by Bubba Beats. Follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you are listening to this now. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tear It Down Podcast and also at 610 Media Group. If you want to get in touch, you can head to 610mediagroup.com or send an email to info at 610mediagroup.com. That's S-I-X and the number 10. Cheers. If this episode has brought up any issues for you, please seek help. You can reach Lifeline at 131114. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.